the uh, the responses that you would expect uh, around race and religion, there were some bad answers. Democrats and Republicans ranked each other 20% less human than they ranked themselves. Um, so when we think about polarization, one of the things that's developed recently that's really, I think, the most profound change in how we've been polarized is that as of the la over the last 30 years, we are no more divided about the actual content of our policy positions, but we hate each other a lot more. So it's not that we've actually gone any different in how much we disagree, but suddenly it's much more personal. And that is when uh, polarization gets really dangerous because as moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt put it in the New York Times, polarization now is not, I disagree with your opinion, it's I hate your stupid face. And that's when it gets really dangerous, right? So one of the things that we know about polarization is that when it reaches a certain tipping point, it can become what we would call toxic and take on really dangerous properties. And that tipping point is this. So a singular rigid identity means every part of us is wrapped up into one political team. Doesn't matter if you're Christian or you're Jewish, just matters whether you're blue or red, right? So even within Christianity, it's no longer, oh, well, we're all Christians, how can we? No, it's like, are you that kind of Christian or are you our kind of Christian? And that becomes the only question, right, is what your political identity is. And this becomes very zero sum. So somebody wins and someone loses. If their side is winning, it must mean my side is losing. And there's no middle ground. There's no sort of happy medium between them. Uh, this is a great cartoon that kind of illustrates this. The caption is, there can be no peace until they renounce their rabbit god and accept our duck god. So um, what I want to talk to you about, and then I'm going to stop, is sort of what those negative feedback loops are. So what is happening in our brains that causes us, once we become polarized, to become more and more polarized until we can't even imagine coming back together again? So the first one is called the fundamental attribution error. These are, none of these are things you could put on a bumper sticker, by the way. So this is how it works. If something good happens to my group, it's because we deserved it. We worked hard, right? If something good happens to their group, it's because they're lucky. If a bad thing happens to my group, it's because of bad luck. Now, anyone who's a sports fan has seen this, right? Why did you lose? Because the referees. Why did you win? Because you're great. But the thing is, we do this in politics too, right? To the point where, when, when a, so for a lot of Democrats, when a Republican is caught wearing blackface, it's because they're an evil racist. But when a Democrat is caught wearing blackface, well, that's a long time ago, maybe it wasn't so bad, blah, 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 you know. And we come up with ways to find excuses for something that we shouldn't be excusing. The second thing is called the halo effect. So once we've decided that we like a person or a group, we tend to believe good things about them. So if you voted for Barack Obama, you are inclined mentally to assume good things about him. And if you hear a bad thing about him, you're inclined to assume it's, it's not true, it's false, it's an attack, uh, it's not real. And the way our brains work is as we become more and more of our identity becomes political, like a Democrat is that's who I am, then an attack on someone who's a Democrat becomes like an attack on us. We treat it like we're under attack. So you can imagine how that plays out for folks who uh, may support or not support the current president, right? An attack on him 
they voted, on him, voted for him feels like an attack on them. This one is uh, the least bumper sticker ready. Motive misattribution. <laughs> so forget Nazis or the Klan for this. Think about mainstream political issues, gun control, abortion, gay marriage, whatever it is. We are inclined to believe that our side is motivated only by love, only by good things, and their side is motivated only by bad things. This is how we think. And as it turns out, we are often extremely wrong about how the other side is actually motivated by. We may not agree with their position. Their position may even be factually wrong, but their motivation is often way more positive than we want to believe. This one is the biggest one, I think. It's called meta-perceptions. So meta-perceptions, what do Democrats think Republicans think of Democrats? So as it turns out, the more we think the other side hates us, the more we hate them back. And it turns out we're often really wrong about how much the other side hates us. So one of the organizations we work with just did a meta-perception study on immigration. It's actually not even public yet, so you're getting a sneak preview. So they asked Democrats and Republicans, zero to 100, what is your position on the border, on immigration? Zero is totally open borders. 100 is totally closed borders, no immigration. What do you guys think? Anyone want to guess what the difference, average difference between positions are out of a 100-point scale? Can you, someone raise their hand and try to guess? Yeah. The same. They're not the same, but I, I appreciate the... Yes. It's like 50-point difference? 10-point difference. 10-point So the difference was about 30 points. So Democrats were in the 30s somewhere on average. Republicans were somewhere in the 60s. What do you think that Democrats and Republicans in the study thought the difference was? 65 points. So they assumed that they were here when actually they were sort of here. Now, if you're here, of course it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to work it out, right? But when you're here, maybe there's some work we could do together. So that's a huge part of this problem, is the assumption that they hate us, they're far more extreme. They all think alike. So how could we ever work with them? Um, lastly, of course, our biases. Uh, we are motivated to find things that agree with our opinion. Has anyone ever looked in the Bible for a quote to back up their <laughs> political beliefs? Right? Everyone's done it. You conveniently skim over the parts you don't like. The other one is the backfire effect. So as it turns out, if I tell you a fact that you don't like, that disagrees with your political opinions, the way your brain works, you come up with a wall for actually become more entrenched in your view. So all those times that people are like, well, if they just knew the facts, they would change their minds. It doesn't work that way. It would be really nice if it worked that way. Um, so that's how we end up with this situation, which is uh, really problematic, obviously, because there is in the end, one set of facts. But lastly, this is the, the craziest part. If, if someone tells you a, a fact that contradicts your deeply held beliefs, your brain actually interprets it the same way, same part of your brain lights up that lights up if someone is coming at you with a weapon. You interpret it as a physical attack on your body and on, your, on who you are. So of course you're not going to respond in a constructive way. So that's the science, the basic science, um, and I'm happy to take questions on it in a minute. Basically, what my organization does is, is 
if we have these singular identities that are at odds with each other, we try to empower these kind of cross-cutting identities. I'm a Democrat, you're Republican, but we both care about the homeless, or we both care about opioids, or whatever it is. And by acting together, by getting people to work together, you're not papering over the problems that we have or the challenges. You're getting them to a place where they can actually address difficult, important, messy things like race, like poverty, like anything that's being tweeted you know, at any given time by our leaders. So it's not trying to avoid these things so we can all just be in unity together or something like that. It's about creating new spaces where people who can't even understand the other person can start doing things together and getting to a place where they feel they can talk to each other and trust each other enough to have hard conversations. Um, so that's the work that we do. We empower these cross-cutting identities. We bring oftentimes evangelical Christians with Muslims and Jews uh, to do work together. We do um, uh, projects on race in Charlottesville and in other parts of the country. And we do a project that brings together religious minorities here in Washington, D.C. with West Virginians uh, to work on the opioid crisis both in West Virginia and here in D.C. where it's very bad and it's not talked about nearly enough. Um, so that's what we do. Um, and the other piece of this slideshow that I'm happy to talk about is how to have a difficult conversation with people you disagree with, maybe like Thanksgiving. Um, and I'm happy to go into that. But does anyone have any questions about anything that I just talked about? Yeah. So um, we use surveys at our events, um, and we do have we do them pre and post, and we have a. 15, 16% improvement in people's attitudes towards other groups. One of the things that we're measuring right now is actually meta-perceptions. We ask people before they walk in, if you're Jewish, what do you think evangelical Christians think about Jews? And then we ask them that afterwards. And that data, we're still, we just started like six months ago, so we're still analyzing it. Um, the other thing we've seen is that uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people with a lot of extreme views that we don't that don't, aren't going out there shooting up things or anything like that, but they're just, they just don't talk about it because they don't know who to talk to about it. I stayed with this woman in Oklahoma, beautifully nice woman, seemed very open-minded. She's an uh, evangelical Christian. We did a project with Muslims. We finished, and I asked her later, I said, would you mind writing a little thing about our experience? And she wrote this thing about how she thought all Muslims were basically suicide bombers. I, was like, I had no idea that's what she thought, but that's just what she had been fed um, and that how wrong she was, and now she knew that. So I think those the, a lot of the changes are hard to measure by data, but we're trying to do that as much as we can. So what, our goal is for them not to leave the space at all. And that's what's different. So there's a lot of groups that came up after the election that do dinners or little workshops. Our youngest chapter is seven months old. And our oldest chapter is 16 months old. So all of our chapters are continuing to engage. We're not going to go in and just do one thing and leave. We want to actually do work in a community that's meaningful, impactful, and lasts. Are so, you, And are you still actively building chapters? Mm-hmm. So what we've done a good job of is doing that well. What we've done a bad job is doing it a million places. So that's our next goal. But we have um, a, a set number of chapters right now that's still engaging. Yeah. And if you want to, of course, just be patient so the recording can have your voice. 
Do you have any groups that are working with the police and communities of color? And yeah. where might they be? So that's a great question. So uh, we did a pilot project with um, in Maryland with a police department, an African-American community uh, association, and then also the NAACP. Um, it was a very early pilot, and I think it was limited in terms of what it showed us. Um, our board of directors includes the head of Black Lives Matter New York, the vice president for criminal justice reform at the Cato Institute, the Libertarian Institute, um, and um, a couple other folks who are very, that's their issue, criminal justice reform and, and, and police community relations. And so we wanna create a, a program of some sort that addresses it, but I think we need to figure out the best way to do that and, and probably listen a lot more to other folks who are already in that space because there's a lot of folks who are, who are doing that. The one thing that we have learned from um, police departments is that they feel like all the trainings out there, they're helpful for the police officers who want to change, who want to know and understand their biases. They're not helpful for police officers who are like, I don't need this, I don't need this at all, I'm not racist, it's not a problem. So the question is how do we get to them and for that, sure, I mean, there's, a, yeah, but like that's, that's the police department's views. And so what, one of the things is that um, we're, we're, we want to work to figure out a way to do that. But I think it's a really important issue that we can, uh, we can be, hopefully play a positive role in. I, I was just going to, I actually have two questions, so I'm kind of cheating. But the first is, what was the catalyst? I mean, I think it's very obvious to us all that we have a severe problem right now. Um, the administration that's in power now seems to be sort of instigating things. However, uh, I think it was not, it didn't just ex start to exist with the Trump administration, right? Yep. I think it was, we, we had issues for, for many, many years. Um, and then the second, so what was the catalyst of putting this together in the first mm -hmm. place? And then the second question is, have you tapped into the, into the hill at all? It seems like this. these are the types of things that would be very interesting to do with staffers and uh, bringing the parties together and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, we, we agree that there's been a problem for a while. Um, the 2016 election was the instigating factor for us um, in terms of, of starting the organization. Um, but, I mean, when you think about this, right, we're up against in terms of just divisiveness, not political agendas, but divisiveness, the president and his megaphone, uh, cable news, social media, talk radio, Russia, and the, the way our brains work on top of all of that, right? Like we are inclined, we want to believe the thing that tells us that we're right and they're wrong. So that's, that's our inclination. So up against that, we need to really have um, uh, investment in countermeasures. Um, in terms of the Hill, we've, we have a little bit, we've had some conversations. I think our, our feeling from the beginning was that we don't want to be in the halls of power. We want to be in church basements and opioid recovery places and shelters um, because the, we don't feel like you can separate polarization from the issues that are impacting people. I mean, if you go in and tell someone whose child was shot by the police that they just need to listen better. So we feel like polarization and the challenges we face are inseparable and that Washington is, um, <laughs> I didn't say that, but. Uh, 
Um, I just wanted to ask you a question about emotional intelligence and critical thinking in the age of science. Most of us are emotional, is what they're saying. MBA programs now in September require everyone to take emotional intelligence and critical thinking, rather than be an emotional, emotional, emotional. And I'm wondering if we all can come together, hear more opposing views, and think much more for, an, for a week, rather than right away we get emotional and say no. And that's what I'm wondering if your company has had to take emotional intelligence and critical thinking. Yeah, that's a good question. We haven't, I haven't taken it myself personally. I think one of the things that we've learned from our science partners is that it, it matters when you do things. So the research shows that if you sit two people down who've never met before and say argue gun control, you're just lighting up, even if they do it in a civil way, right? You're just lighting up the part of your brain that feels polarized from them. But if you do things together, right, and then through that action build relationships of trust where you can then have difficult conversations. We have a, 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 a project where it's an African-American church and a very conservative group. And the only place that, the, that these two guys get their news from is Fox News and their two African-American friends in this group. This is the only two sources of news, right? And because, only because they trust them do they listen to what they have to say. Whereas otherwise they would just have dismissed it, right? So you have, to, you have to sequence things to get it to a point where you can sort of break through these walls that we've built up. And it takes time. You can't do it in a one-day workshop. So um, would, you, would you mind kind of explaining how, giving an example or two of how you get an event together, how you get some folks together? It sounds like you go with action first, finding a common issue of concern, mm -hmm. action items, and then from that building trust and maybe hopefully more dialogue comes out of it. But can you kind of walk us through how your organization gets that going and if there's who's there, if anyone to facilitate, mm -hmm. help things along? Yeah, sure. So we, uh, we, when we work with a community, we, um, we get a couple, two, three partners together. Oftentimes it's religious groups, not always. Um, and we ask them, what do you want to do together? So they're there because they know that the ultimate goal is to reduce the division, but we're never going to go into a community and say, well, you really should work on this, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they tell us what they want to work on. We just facilitate the conversations. We, our staff go in and facilitate. Um, we give them, we train them on the science. We, we try to empower them with the science rather than manipulate them. Um, we, uh, we help sort of navigate the pitfalls that come with that. Um, sometimes they say, you know, we're not ready to pick an issue yet. We want to just learn. So like we want to go see each other's worship services or we want to do whatever. Uh, and sometimes that is the first thing they do. But we kind of just give them advice on how best to, to do it. So um, as we now, you know, get ready to scale and do more, we'll have to, there'll be a trade-off between how much time intensiveness we put into a chapter and how many chapters we have, which is the reality of it. But that's kind of the process. One more, and then we'll go to the next. Um, this is a sort of a, a big subject. My mother used to say there's always been lying, cheating, and stealing. And, I, and you were talking about trust. And this is one of my problems right now. It seems a lot, there are an awful lot of lying going on. I mean, of course, we're in Washington. <laughs> Winter's right here. Yeah. And, um, and then you can't trust. It's hard to trust because you have to figure out whether, first of all, is this a fact or not a fact? Is this, and, and this is, of course, um, really troublesome to me. As I listened to Trump's son the other day, I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, it's, 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 it's spreading. And he's just got all these people in his hand and yelling and hollering, and it's, it's not true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's exaggeration. 
And so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm having a hard time with this. Uh, I think in the big picture, people, I mean, all kinds of people are lying. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if our job was to befriend or build trust with politicians, I mean, that's harder, right? Politicians do what politicians do. I think that what the people who support a politician who is lying, oftentimes, again, it's because they're trying to, uh, they're pre-programmed to find the facts that work for their worldview um, and to defend the person they voted for. And I think that there are way more people out there, though. Uh, you know, what we see on TV are the rallies. We see the people at the rallies. We don't see the people, millions of whom are at home, who maybe go, oh, I don't know, but you know, maybe voted differently than we did. There's, there's so much sort of, um, when, we, when we think everyone on one side is the same way, we're going to be much less likely to engage. When we realize that millions of people have millions of different ideas and motivations and beliefs, it's a little easier to sort of take a step towards, towards that. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so let's talk quickly about how to have, I'm going to skip this, conversation. <laughs> the original picture I had in here was, not, this is not copyrighted. The original picture I had in here was with uh, Pelosi and Trump and Pence in the office when, when <laughs> P Pence looked like he wanted to just like slide under his chair. Um, so the, the first thing is you... You have, to, um, you have to not have a conversation with the intention of debating to win an argument, right? You have, to, you have to start, as frustrating as it can be, to listen to someone whose views maybe you know are factually wrong. You have to start from trying to understand where, where they got to those views, right? Um, and to do that, you have to listen, and you have to ask questions that deepen your understanding of where they come from rather than gotcha questions. Um, and to say, this is not theory. Like, we've, we had an abortion conversation with these ground rules in one of our chapters with people on totally opposite sides of the spectrum. And it was really good because they really actually, I mean, they didn't change their minds at all, but they understood the other side's position and where they're coming from a lot better than before that. Uh, one thing is to leave a pause after someone says something. Uh, it, it's actually, there's science behind that. It's not just because you don't want to jump to respond. Because the way our brains work, the, the subconscious is the uh, elephant, which is like most of our thinking, and the writer who thinks he's in charge is our conscious, right? The writer's not really in charge. The elephant goes wherever the elephant wants to go. When we hear something we don't like, the elephant goes, whoa, and goes this way. And the writer then says, okay, well, we're going this way, so I'm going to come up with ways to justify that. If you pause, you give the elephant kind of a second to maybe come back into the conversation. So... It's important to not just, you know, react right away. Again, hard, I know, but assume good intent. It may not be there, but it's there more often than you think it is. Um, and if you get people to clarify something and explain something rather than just jump on them, uh, you may actually start to get away from their talking points and into more of, a, of an understanding. Um, try to be self-aware when you're having these kinds of conversations. People are going to say things that just intuitively, excuse my language, piss you off. Try to uh, notice your own responses, right? Don't have these conversations in front of cameras, right? What's said <laughs> stays there. 
this is my favorite. So whenever we have these conversations, you have to have a talking object. No one's allowed to talk unless they're holding the stuffed unicorn so that you're not arguing and yelling and, and jumping in front. If you disagree with someone strongly, uh, say something that you understood, right? So try to repeat the one, maybe they say 10 things that are totally wrong. Try to take the one thing that they said that you agreed with and hit that. And the most important, I think, in some ways is to try to remove binaries. So everything the media does is push us into you're this or you're that. There's no other option. But most Americans are like this. So the more you can reduce those binaries and get to the gray, the more success you'll have. Um, our brains process certain values differently. So if I disagree with your tax policy, my brain doesn't treat that like it's sacred necessarily. If I disagree with your view on the dignity of human beings based on the color of their skin, my brain processes that differently or it, you know, Jerusalem or whatever the issue is. So you, you have to understand if you're dealing with a value that someone holds sacred, you're gonna have a harder time breaking through. And so you have to recognize that. Um, try to keep these ground rules in your pocket. So uh, you're not always gonna have these conversations in a facilitated room, right? This is my friend, Miriam. She met this man uh, a few weeks after the election at a rally that she was walking past. And this picture of them got shared 12,000 times on Facebook, literally 12,000 times. And the conversation she had with him, she had no prep, right? She had no plan to, way to plan for it. She had no way to sort of talk to him about her concerns as a Muslim American about the incoming president. Um, and so you have to sort of be ready. Uh, I'm running through these quickly, how not to have a conversation. Don't have it on Twitter. Um, don't, well, I'll say, it, don't do the Oprah, right? So Oprah got a bunch of Democrats and Republicans together after the election, she, in a, like, abandoned warehouse in Michigan or something, and she said, all right, first question, what do you think of Trump? That's a terrible question, right? Just puts up the binary. First guy says, oh, I love him, he's great, doing a great job. You know, I wish he would stop tweeting. I really am sort of uncomfortable with some of the things he says. I don't like how he attacks people. My kids, you know, don't want to want my kids to be like that. But I love, you know, economy's going great, love him. Instead of digging into that, she goes, okay, next person. What do you think of Trump? Right? Like those, those tensions in people, we have to get at those and get away from just the you're either this or you're that. This is an incredible quote by a um, conservative commentator. So if you think our politics are becoming like team sports, here's the... Here's the proof. So what she's saying basically is I get why some Republicans are frustrated with the president, but look, we can't be on their team, right? So when you attack someone's identity, you are attacking in their mind something that is central to them. So if you say, well, the problem is that all Republicans are this, right? You might as well be telling a Red Sox fan, the problem is that you root for the Red Sox, you should root for the Yankees. It doesn't work. Um, so you have to find a different way around. Uh, and then lastly, as I said, just sitting down and having a civil dialogue doesn't actually make it good. You have to have built trust and relationships with people, otherwise you're just reinforcing what's already there. So that's like 101 in like a very quick version. Does anyone have any questions or comments or thoughts on that? Andy, we... Um, how much we, time? I don't know how much time we have. Uh, uh, oh, we go till um, like 10.05. Okay, so great. The one here. Um, so 11.05, thank you. Did I, we switch the hour? We're good. 
Um, uh, there was a group of us, because the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, big issues over marriage equality, uh, and there was a group that, before I came to this presbytery, called Can We Talk? And they found, and I'm just curious, throwing the strategy by, because I'm really interested in trust, and if you go search your TED Talks today, oxytocin, and uh, how uh, trust, there's trust chemicals, and we're learning how to develop that. I'm really interested in that in congregations. Um, this one consultant talks about congregations. Like our primary task is to create dispositions of trust. So I want to know how to do that better. So if you have ideas, let me know. Um, <laughs> but this group would always start, with, all their statements always go with, what I love about, let's say if you're the progressive theology, what I love about evangelical theology is, what I really appreciate about, there's always a positive statement about the other side, um, which I love, but in, you know, in this case, there's, there's a bit more education coming from both ends, right? I think so much of the work you're doing is folks who literally know nothing, or yes, all Muslims are suicide bombers. Um, I'm wonder, wondering how much of that is helpful and how much of it is just tell me a story. You know what I mean? The, the power, so I also have questions about the power of narrative and storytelling. Um, yeah, I'm going to bite off any of those. Yeah, so, so yeah, storytelling is incredibly important. I think people genuinely don't know what they don't know. And so they, like, they don't know the experiences of other people who they've never been in their shoes, right? So um, at the um, abortion conversation, two of the women in the room were pregnant. I didn't even, one of them I didn't even know was pregnant until after the conversation. Uh, they're both pro-choice. And then one of the pro-life guys said that when he was, um, his mom was pregnant with him, she was told by doctors that there was a 99% chance that he had a serious illness and that she, you know, everyone in her family was telling her to have an abortion, even people who were pro-life. And she didn't, and he didn't have the illness. So like telling that kind of story is, of course, going to be much more impactful mm -hmm. towards someone than just like repeating a talking point. Um, and it's frustrating because... We shouldn't, especially people who have been marginalized and oppressed in our society, shouldn't have to tell other people about their experiences all the time and have to live through that and relive it. Um, unfortunately, I think that because we're getting so divided, we're getting into our own universes, our own worlds, it's becoming more and more important to continue to do that anyway because otherwise people just don't know it and they're, they're, just, they're living in a totally different universe with different facts, different news, different stories. And I think it's important for those of us who feel like we have, you know, um, in sort of blue urban bubbles, to uh, to understand that we don't know all the experiences of people who don't live in those communities. So I think it's just important to continue to push ourselves, but it's it's hard because a lot of folks really shouldn't have to push themselves. Um, it's not fair. Okay. And I was telling Andy about the example of the church, um, National Methodist Nova AU, who every three months they go to the, their partner church in southeast in Anacostia. And so people are physically leaving their building, going to the other one. Um, just one way that some churches in the area are trying to overcome this dialogue. I have a question and comment. My question is, is that material available? Yeah. Like on your website or anything? Yeah, um, it is. We have, uh, yeah, we can send it to folks. Um, I, I found that I, I would like to review it. You know, if I, I liked your idea of having it sort of in your head to deal with, mm -hmm. you know, lay down the neural with your circuits. Uncle. Yep. Yeah, thank yep. you. And my comment is, I hope this isn't being insulting, <laughs> but I feel like some of it resonates with me from parenting because they talk to us about 
being genuinely curious. Because sometimes kids do like the most bizarre stuff, or it can be perceived as destructive and hostile. And what? And you know, we get at this attitude about the kid and how whack they are. <laughs> if you're curious and you can be in a mindset of saying, "Honey, help me understand this." My favorite answer is when they say, "I don't know. You know, I'm just crazy." But, <laughs> but sometimes there's a reason. And so if we go into some of these conversations with genuine curiosity, not judgmental. But, and I've used this phrase frequently, could you help me understand this? Because <laughs> I don't really understand it. And then there's, it, it creates a little bit of, I don't know, humility on our part. Like, okay, I don't actually get this. My second one, which I also use in sensitive subjects, is to sort of lay this stuff on the table. I've been tiptoeing across racial lines for a very long time, long enough to know that the pain is deep and it is nowhere gone. And those of us who are provocative <laughs> have been tiptoeing mindfully sometimes get ourselves into situations. <laughs> so I've learned to say, this seems to be a situation. You know, I'm feeling all kind of stuff here that I don't understand. So you just lay that out. Like, this is difficult. This is uncomfortable. Something is happening here. And then it kind of normalizes it. Like, yeah, instead of being fearful in those moments of I've crossed some line, I've done something hurtful, or they've done it to me, we just say, okay, this is – and if you get buy-in, then it can put you forward in the conversation. Also, asking people's permission in those difficult times to say, gee, this has really gotten emotional. Can I ask you something? And then if it's too much for them, then they say, no, you know, we're, we're done. Or, I mean, by just sort of commenting on, on what's happening, you know, like this tone has suddenly gotten cold or I think I've done something wrong here. Can I ask you? And then respect what they say. Yeah. I've been rereading Getting to Yes, and I haven't finished it. <laughs> There's a lot to process and think about practicing. Um, and you're reinforcing, you're teaching the same things. Um, but my question is, and I haven't read this far, <laughs> reread this far, what do you do after you have the conversation? You, you listen, you understand, you know, how, why do you think this way? How, you know, what's the story behind that? And then what? How it, it seems to me that would require a facilitator or no, prolonged exposure to each other. And you said that's what you do, but how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what we are really trying to do is foster long-term uh, engagement that's actually meaningful and helpful to a community. Um, and so what's next is really up to the people in that room. Uh, we're there to help with that, whatever that process looks like, but we're never going to dictate. You know, when I first started this job, I was all full of like should, you know, like everyone should do this and should do that. And it, it was humbling to realize how uh, obnoxious that was, right? Like it, the, the reality is that some people are ready for certain conversations, some people aren't. Some people absolutely should not have to be expected to have certain conversations. Um, and some people will have those conversations up to a point at a time when they're ready, et cetera. Um, we just want to foster the spaces where they can happen if people want them to uh, and to do them in the right way. Um, so what happens next? 
usually it goes well and people want to more deeply engage, but that's up to them. Um, but what we offer is the action so that they can continue to, to be doing something together with or without the conversations uh, based on whatever they're ready for. Yes, but there's a there's a there's a good hitch, which is that if you get a bunch of random unaffiliated people, and you get them together, then maybe they're <coughs> sort of the people who want to come to these tables anyway. But if you get them from congregations, then they go back and they think, okay, what about the 20 people in my church who were too scared to go meet a Muslim? I need to get them to come with me next time. And so they're continuing to have these conversations within their communities, and it's sort of rippling out. And that's a really important part of what we're doing. And John, yes, um, and, and maybe you, maybe you uh, said this already, but do you find that there's a difference between people who might say on the right and between those and, and those on the left in uh, asking these questions in the same way? It's a good question. Um, Sort of, I think. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't want to offend anyone. I would say some folks on the left are becoming more and more like the folks on the right. Um, I think that the only the only person who's ever said I want nothing to do with the work you're doing was a rabbi who said I don't want to meet evangelicals. I don't care what they have to say. That was the only one. We've never had someone on the right say I don't want. To, I don't care about what liberals have to say. Hmm. But in some of the conversations, yeah, I think there's this liberal tendency, like, I want to understand you, I want to, you know, and um, that's a good thing. Uh, and then, you know, some folks on the right sort of like, well, I just want to be left to my freedom and, like, <laughs> you can believe whatever you believe, just don't tax me. So there's, you know, those are huge, grossly, you know, stereotypes. But that's, I think there's some dynamics to that that are true. But I think there's folks on both sides who just say, I don't care what you have to say, you're wrong and... I don't want to know you, unfortunately. So I had the privilege of hearing you in service. You. And I just want to come back to the interaction about power yeah. and the joke about D.C. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm trying to shift structure. Mm -hmm. You know, with the 17 elements of privilege, I believe there are 17 structures that benefit me. And the best way to shift and remove those is to affect those that currently have it. Mm -hmm. So to ignore DC, to me, is to bury your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious to, because it seemed as though, you know, it was almost kind of a give up. And so, like, as someone on this journey trying to do it, yeah. am I foolish? No. Or, you know, like, how, 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 do, how do we bring the fold in and, and show the love? that we're trying to do in the communities as well? Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a good question. I don't think we should ignore DC. I think it is more a reality of what a small nonprofit can do, right? We can only do so much. Um, I think this, is, this sort of stuff is deeply needed in DC. I think the politicians have a logic that they're up against, that even the ones who really want to do right have the logic of, of the, like the cold calculus of what sells. So I, had a, a, uh, I was in a meeting once with Van Jones, the CNN crew, and he said that when he and Newt Gingrich did Crossfire together, they, they both wanted to do a segment at the end of the show where they said something they agreed about. And the producer said, no, that's a terrible idea. 
And they, but they said, no, we're putting, this is the hill we're dying on. We will quit this show if you don't let us do it. So they let them do it. And it was the worst rated part of the show. <laughs> so this is what politicians, I think, are up against. That's not what sells. That's not what raises money. It's not what you know, wins primary elections. Um, and I, yeah, the organizations I work with and, and our organization would love to help politicians with that process. Um, it, it's hard. But if you know politicians, I'm happy to talk. Hi, I'm, I'm Alicia. I'm coming at this a bit um, with a Canadian perspective. I've only lived in the States for about three and a half years total. Um, and living outside of the capital city in Canada and living outside the capital city here, <laughs> um, some of the things that we can observe just as base are that schools tend to be a little bit more homogenous in the types of kids who go there. Um, we don't see that quite as much in part, I think, because Canadian communities, like we're talking about institutions that set these things up, a little bit more mixed to begin with, um, no matter, you know. Um, I was wondering if there is any focus on children and bringing this down to the generation next. Yeah. Um, because I think it's, you know, 50% of kids in Canada go to post-secondary education. And in post-secondary education, at least now, we're taught about this, like a lot of this, I'd heard before, and um, no matter what side, left or right, you've heard this before, and you might come to the dialogue a little bit more open and ready to listen. But there are 50% who will leave public high school and not get mm -hmm. that education, not even insight into it. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering how, um, if there are groups, whether yours or other groups, that are looking at this from the younger kids to start to be that kind of socially curious. Yeah. It's a great question. And as a quarter Canadian, I just want to... Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, and my best quarter, by the way. Um, I uh, so so there is a there is an organization that does this on college campuses, or not exactly this, but some version of it. Um, I actually just had someone reach out to me recently, said they're trying to create like a, a rural urban exchange program for kids or for, mm. for young people. I think it's a great idea. So when I talk to this person, I'll I'll let you know. But I I think you're right. I think it's really important. And uh, our focus is religious communities and religious leaders. But we need this. I mean, we need this stuff everywhere. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, after the election, our granddaughter and her school went to the head of the school and said, we need to have a whole day of students coming in, no classes, sitting around and talking at tables. Because people were crying, people were all upset. They were echoing what their parents had been talking about. And so I think high schools even around here especially, and it worked. Mm. The kids sat around and really just talked together and shared evidently the whole day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's studying psychology in college right now. <laughs> Good for her. I studied history. That didn't get me a job. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, great. Well, I know we're almost – oh, one more question? Yeah. So this is the, the ignore the second one because that's for religious leaders. But um, you know, there's a couple ways to get involved. So the West Virginia project that we do is connecting DC-based communities with West Virginia communities, and uh, there's ways for folks that here to get involved in that. Um, there's also uh, we're also open to ideas, especially in our own backyard, where we have staff able to get to something without going on a plane. So if there's a specific community you want to engage with that you're not engaging with right now. Uh, we're happy to help facilitate that. 
Other otherwise, you can uh, replace number two with uh, donating to our work um, and sharing, sharing about us, Facebook, social media, Twitter, et cetera, all the things that I just bashed for the last two hours. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if, if you're interested in being involved, there's, there are lots of ways to do that. I also have uh, materials, which I should have passed out a while back, but I'll, I can pass out now. Is there anybody who did not the sign-up sheet? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and thank you so much for, for coming. And I'm, I'm giving the sermon at the next service, and I'm happy to stick around after that, too, if anyone has questions or uh, anything like that. Thank you. And I don't... Uh, yeah, thank you. Woo.